picking up in the gospel according to John. Uh, this morning we're still in chapter 1, and if you've been around here with me very long, it shouldn't surprise you that we've taken so many weeks. <laughs> uh, just in chapter 1, uh, we work through books, and that's my practice. I've done that since the very beginning of the church here. Uh, it doesn't mean that on occasion I don't do some do a sermon that's you know, not following through a particular book, but the pattern that I've used over and over again is to preach through books. Because we understand that everything that, that, that comes before a particular passage has a lot to do with understanding that passage, and everything that follows after it has a lot to do with understanding with what follows. So we started John like three, I think it's two or three weeks ago, and we're going to be working on it until we go all the way through the book, and it may take us quite a while to do that. And if you know anything about me, you'll be going, yeah, that's really true. It's going to take a while, but... Uh, but anyway, just remember that all the things that we're going to talk about today are based in, to some degree upon the things we've talked about uh, already. Uh, we're going to be picking up with, we're, we started talking last week about the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, and we're going to be getting more into that this morning. We're going to be picking up in chapter uh, Chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, and that's the day after, uh, John had been at Bethany. Uh, the next day, Jesus saw, uh, or the next day he, and the he is John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. I read something very remarkable the other day, and it really surprised me. You know, I've been doing this for a long time now, and there really are not too many things that come along that surprise me so much anymore, but this really did. Uh, I was reading a commentary uh, and, and what the particular commentator was talking about was all the different names or titles that are ascribed to Jesus in the Bible. And he, he, he revealed that he had been to this Bible conference some years before, and there was this well-known pastor, preacher, teacher that got up to speak, and the only thing he did for 30 minutes without stopping was reading names and titles ascribed to Jesus in the Bible. It took him 30 minutes to mention all of them. What does that say about our Lord? It tells us how great and how awesome and how wonderful and how full and how extensive and, and, and all of that he really is because very often these names, these titles that are ascribed to him are descriptors. 
They tell us different things about him, about his character, about who he is. You're familiar with some of those. You know, he's called the Christ. He's called the Son of God. He's called the Son of Man. He's called the Lord. He's called the Lion of Judah. He's called the Bread of Life. He's called the Door. He's called the Vine. He's called the Way, the Truth, and the Life. He's called the Redeemer. He's called the Word. He's called the Light. He's called the Savior, and so on and so on. So many titles that I could just go on for 30 minutes to cover all of them. Does that not blow your mind? I would say it would be easy to come to the conclusion that Jesus has been given more titles than any other person in history by a long shot. And you're going to see some of those particular ones as we go through this book of John. He was called already the Word. He's been called the Light. And now John calls him the Lamb of God. Now, I don't know how much you know about lambs. I would imagine most of us don't have a whole lot of practical knowledge about lambs. I'm not sure I've ever been around a lamb, other than to eat one on occasion. Lambs are very significant in the Bible. Here John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. And we understand that those lambs were used for sacrifice. They were substitutionary atoning sacrifices. In other words, they were representatives in essence of people. And if you remember the stories about the things that God did to, to bring Israel out of Egypt... We know that they all culminated with the death of the firstborn in every Egyptian household. But before that took place, we know that Israel was instructed to take uh, the blood of lambs and to spread it on the lintel and their doorposts. And when they did that, that the that the angel of death would pass over their houses. We understand that when the tabernacle and then later the temple were established, that it was a morning and there was an evening sacrifice done every day of a lamb. We know from the, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 7, speaks so very clearly about the suffering servant Jesus. We, we know is Jesus. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Very often we think about lambs, we think about defenseless little creatures. They have no defense mechanism. Sheep have no really defense mechanism against anything. They're very vulnerable, especially the lambs. Well, we need to remember this, that Jesus is described as a lamb in some aspects. Because he's the one who came forth and gave his life as a sacrifice. That we would have salvation in him. 
that we can never think of Jesus as being defenseless. Jesus was fully capable of defending himself. But he chose not to do that. For you and I. He knew that he had a lot to endure. And a big part of what he had to endure was being that sacrificial lamb. Who paid the penalty for my sins. Who paid the penalty for your sins. By the way, I forgot to say this in the beginning. That is this Bethany that's mentioned here. I just bring it up. Bethany beyond the Jordan. We're not even sure exactly where that is located. Or was located. But we do know it's not the Bethany that very often the Gospels talk about where Lazarus and his two sisters Martha and Mary lived uh, near the Mount of Olives. It's not that Bethany. It's a different Bethany. But exactly where it is, we don't know. But we know there was water there available. Why? Because John was there baptizing people. And we talked about this when we first started last week talking more about John. And that is, even though John and Jesus were related, it doesn't seem like they had any kind of relationship with one another before all this stuff began to unfold. It's not like they were cousins or whatever. They got together for family reunions on a regular basis and they actually knew each other. Because John right here in the verses we just read says he didn't know him. So even though they were related, they didn't have a close relationship. They may have known something of one another. But Jesus so far in this gospel has been referred to as the word and as the light. And now John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God. The sacrifice. The true sacrifice. I mean, we're enlightened by the book of Hebrews that the blood of sheep and goats doesn't take away sin. That all of that was just a picture. Every sacrifice that ever took place in the Old Testament and even into the days of the beginning of the New Testament was just a prefiguring of the true sacrifice to come, the death of Jesus. John says in verse 29 that he is the one who takes away the sins of the world. Now let me tell you something. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ was sufficient to atone for every sin that any person that has ever lived committed. That's how abundant it is. As great as mankind's sin has been as a whole, the value of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is all the much greater. If Jesus had come to atone for the sins of every person that had ever breathed air, then that would have taken place. But we know this, that he came to be that sacrifice for a people set apart specially. 
by Him. So we can never understand this phrase that says, He takes away the sin of the world to understand that Jesus died for every sin that's ever been committed. That's not what's being said here. Because if Jesus atoned for all the sins of all people, then all sins would be forgiven, and we understand and know they're not. John says in verse 31, I did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. This is the purpose of John's ministry. It's not to make a great name for himself. It's not to be highly regarded and respected by people. His whole purpose in coming was to shed or to to shine a light on Jesus and on Jesus' mission, and on Jesus' ministry. Sometimes we look upon John the Baptist as this great guy that, that had this unbreakable and unfathomable faith. But I love the Bible because very often when we, when we build those false pictures of people, The Bible very often helps us to see things very differently. If you're familiar with Scripture, in Luke chapter 7, verse 20, I want to challenge you with the idea that the real Jesus that came was not exactly the Jesus that John the Baptist even expected. That there were some things about this real Jesus that came that surprised even John. Even to the point that John wondered if he was really the Messiah. Later on, after John's in prison, remember the story how John's in prison because he speaks out against Herod who took his brother Philip's wife as his own wife, Herodias. When he was in prison, he sent some of his own disciples to Jesus to ask him a question. The question is this, are you the one who is to come? I'm saying this is years later from this event by the River Jordan. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? You ever have doubts? You ever wonder about things? Is all of this stuff real? Am I just following after a fable? Are my sins really forgiven? Am I really a child of God? You ever have thoughts like that? I know you do. You may not admit it, but I know you have them. Let me tell you, if you, if you don't, then I'm in big trouble. Because I have those thoughts very regularly. I wonder exactly where I am and... Uh, and that sort of thing. And, I, and it's just encouraging to me to read things like this. That even someone as great as John the Baptist had times of wonder and doubt. Makes you feel better, doesn't it? 
Because we all have those times. I just want to challenge us, as I did last week, to remember this, that, that our mission, and we've been given a mission too. John was given a mission. You and I as believers are given a mission too. And our mission is not really very different than John's was. John's mission was to shine the light on Jesus. We share in that mission to help others see Christ as we've seen come to see Christ and know Christ. Remember, he calls us the light of the world. There's a sense in which the light of Christ shines through us into the darkness. And there are times when other people see that light and they're drawn to that light. Not necessarily sometimes that light turns other people off. It did me for many, many years of my life. Anytime I saw that light shining, I ran into the darkness. I don't know about you, where you came from or, or whatever. But reality is this. is when you're a Christian, you, you have the light of Christ in you and it shines out. And there's some things that help us to keep things in the right perspective. And one of those would be this. is We have to always remember that we don't deserve to be saved. And we just don't. None of us do, does. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. We don't believe because we're better than everybody else. We believe because Jesus has actively aggressively saved us and done everything necessary to make that happen. No one deserves to be saved. There's no one that has earned it ever. We are saved by grace, God's grace. So we don't deserve to be saved, but God does in fact deserve to be honored and glorified. That is his very right as God Almighty to be loved and obeyed, revered, admired, respected, honored, glorified. It's a scary place to be. But when people look at us, they should see some semblance of Jesus in us. Really. And we need to be mindful of that. That very often, and let me tell you, you know, as an unbeliever, for many years, I was in my 30s when I became, came to faith in Jesus Christ. My picture of Jesus was what I saw in people who claimed to be Christians. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of times, it wasn't a good picture. Very often I saw Christians as nothing but these judgmental people who look down their nose at everybody else. 
Heaven forbid that that be the impression that people have of you and me. What they need to see is people who have truly been humbled and broken by the grace of God. Who know something they don't know. Who more importantly know someone who they don't know. We know that when this event took place, it's being described here in John, that previously to that, that John the Baptist had actually baptized Jesus. That Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. You don't find it here in the Gospel of John, but you do find uh, the narrative of that in all the other three Gospels, that John the Baptist had baptized Jesus in the Jordan. And John makes mention of it here himself in verse 32, where he says, that I saw this Holy Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. It was God's way of identifying to John that this was he. If you remember those descriptions from the other Gospels about the baptism of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit descended on him as a dove and it remained on him. Verse 33, he says this, I myself did not know him. There you go. Did John the Baptist know Jesus personally? Did they grow up as cousins that played with each other on a regular basis? It doesn't appear to be true. <clears throat> or maybe he knew Jesus, but it was just not obvious to him who he really was. But God had revealed to him that, that he would see a dove come down from heaven and it would rest upon the Savior to come. And that took place when John baptized Jesus. Many of us, me included, come from a tradition that says that in order to be baptized properly, you have to be baptized by being completely immersed underwater. You know, and very often the argument that's used, and you need to understand that I came from that background, my, background myself, and I know a lot of you did too. This idea that immersion completely underwater was the only appropriate means of baptism. But we understand that baptism is symbolic of a number of things, but the particular thing it's symbolic of is the actual baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what I would say to you is that, 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 that uh, examples like this actually argue that it is very appropriate for baptism where water is applied that comes down from the top over. That's how the Holy Spirit came down on Jesus. In a sense, it was his baptism that took place there when John baptized him. And we understand some other things. And one of those is that, that, that baptism by water doesn't save anybody. Some people believe that, you know, you'll hear them. You know, you start sharing with them and they say, well, I was baptized when I was 10 years old. 
They may have lived their life in a manner that is contrary to anything and everything that John the Baptist ever taught in Jesus too. But that's what they hold dear. They hold to that. That I was baptized, you know, 15 years ago, and therefore I, that's my ticket into heaven. I'm going to heaven when I die, even though my life doesn't display any love and appreciation association with Jesus at all. My life is very worldly and, uh, and that sort of thing. But I just want to bring this to your attention. And what I would say to you this morning is there is biblical argument maybe for immersion. You know, immersion, the, the, whole, the whole argument for immersion is it says that Jesus came up out of the water when he was baptized. And we read into that that Jesus must have gone completely down into the water. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It could be that Jesus was standing up to his knees in the water and John took water and poured it over his head and then Jesus walked up out of the water. And I just want you to understand something, that in in our denomination, we accept water baptism and we don't make a big deal about how the water was applied. Because there is a biblical, biblical argument for a number of different mechanisms of doing that. I've had people told at times, if you weren't dunked, then you weren't baptized. You need to be, and they encourage people to be re-baptized. But this is an example of that. You know, one of the biggest examples of baptism without immersion is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's poured out. The Spirit was poured out upon John. He wasn't dunked in the Holy Spirit. See, very often we make mountains out of molehills. We draw barriers and boundaries where we really don't need to and we, don't, we shouldn't, but we do it anyway. I'm delighted to be part of a denomination where we accept immersion as a means of baptism, but we also accept baptism by pouring and sprinkling. It's just the application of water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 34, John says, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. I really believe this. That the, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God stands above the other fact that Jesus is the Savior. What I'm telling you is as far as importance goes in our understanding of who Jesus is, is more important for us to understand that He's God than it is that He's the Savior. But very often when we talk about Jesus, it's Savior, 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 Savior. And we don't spend a whole lot of talking about the fact that Jesus, in fact, is God himself. Sometimes people emphasize that Jesus is Savior at the expense of the fact that he is is God. And they never even get around to saying that he's God. He was God first, then he was Savior. 
He's eternal God. He's always been. He's the third person of the Trinity. Or second person of the Trinity, however you want to say it. He's God eternal in human form. He was God first and Savior later. Another thing that I want to bring to your attention too is this, you know, that this idea that because I was baptized and I'm saved. Uh, and it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I live my life. It doesn't matter if I continue to acknowledge Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior day after day after day after day. I was just baptized when I was 10 years old. Therefore, I'm going to heaven. That whole idea is contrary to Scripture. I mean, what Scripture teaches over and over again is if you truly are a believer, it will come through in, in you. There's a sense in which it will be obvious to everyone that you are living your life for Christ. That He is the center of everything. From which everything else flows forth. I just want to remind us this morning that when we tell people about Jesus, it's important that we talk about the fact he's a Savior, but, but before that, what should even come before that is the fact that he's the Son of God. He's eternal, almighty God. And as, as John, how did John open his gospel? The Word doing all the creating. The Word being Jesus. I just want to remind us this morning that the gospel starts with the fact that Jesus is God. And he's Savior second. Just as the Father sent forth the Son, the Son sends forth the Holy Spirit. Is there anyone in your life that you've been trying to convert for your whole life or for a good bit of years and you just feel like you're beating your head against a wall? You can't save anybody. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability. You don't have the wherewithal. The Holy Spirit does that. Let me ask you, if I, if I ask another question, what do you think the chief end of the gospel is? What is the main principle, primary purpose of the gospel? That one crossed my. What would you say? Well, I would imagine most people would say this. It seems pretty obvious that the principle and primary purpose of the gospel is to save sinners. But what if I told you that's not true? There's something that supersedes that. There's something that's greater, more awesome than that. And that is this. 
It's to glorify God. To glorify God. So why is it that you have become a believer? You've become a believer for all kinds of reasons, but one of those is that God would be glorified in you and through you. That you, like John the Baptist, will shine the light of Jesus into the lives of other people. like we're just mirrors the light of Christ shines on us and we reflect that light out into the lives of the people around us and sometimes people will be drawn to that light just like you were You know how certain kinds of bugs just flock to the lights at night? You ever think of yourself as one of those bulbs? <laughs> See, we're on a mission. The mission's not to make ourselves look good in front of other people. Not to be highly regarded and respected by other people. But just like Jesus, just like John the Baptist, just like Peter and John and James and all the others, we have a mission. And that's to shine the light of Christ into this otherwise dark and lightless world does the world need the message of Jesus today <laughs> you betcha in every age it has desperately but it's very easy for us to hinder that light sometimes we let ourselves get in the way of it because we let other priorities take place before maybe the most important thing that we do. Seriously. Is Jesus really the center of all of it? In everything that you do and everything that you think and everything about you, does it flow forth through that? Let me tell you, when unbelievers see that, they will not know how to handle it. I'm telling you, one of the things that became very obvious to me when people were trying to witness to me 30-something years ago It was this, either they knew something I just did not know. More importantly, they knew someone I did not know.
Now we know Jesus loves us. There can be no doubt. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Feel that love. Feel part of it. I truly hope so. Because there's nothing like it. Nothing comes close. It is wonderful. And it is worth everything. Everything. Everything.